From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's new monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm really excited about today's discussion and even more excited about who we get to have it with. Our five guests today are giants of the NP community who have each excelled in both practice and leadership and pioneered new paths for nurse practitioners who came in after them. Dr. Randy Rash, Dr. Sheldon Fields, Captain James Dickens, Dr. Khalil de Monbrion, and Captain Edward Poindexter join us today to share their unique insights and experiences as male nurse practitioner leaders of color. The issues of diversity, racism, social justice, and equality have risen to the forefront in our country recently, but these are unfortunately not new concepts. However, I truly believe that if we view this increased awareness as an opportunity, healthcare providers are in a unique position to be a catalyst for really positive progress in addressing health disparities in America. Nurse practitioners are comprised of a diverse group of individuals, including those from different specialties, life experiences, races, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, ages, religious backgrounds, genders, gender identities, and sexual orientations. The patients that we serve are equally as diverse, and the quality of the care that we're able to deliver is directly related to our ability to embrace these qualities and understand how they translate to individual and unique patient needs. I've known these five gentlemen for years, and I have to say it's always a good time when we get together. Please join me in welcoming our guests today. Gentlemen, welcome to NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. I'm so glad you're here with us today. We've got so much to talk about. The first thing I want to do is have you all introduce yourselves to the listeners. And so uh, take it away. Well, I want to hear about uh, who you are, what you're doing now in your career, and then we're going to backtrack a little bit. So I'm Randolph Rash. I go by Randy. I'm Dean of the College of Nursing at Michigan State University. This is my sixth year and cross your fingers, I'm undergoing uh, Dean's review. So wish me luck. Good luck. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Sheldon Fields. Um, I'm currently in independent practice and a consultant, but I have accepted a brand new position as an inaugural associate dean for equity and inclusion for a large college of nursing in the East. Um, Can't tell you yet because the official announcement will come out October 1, but I'm very excited. And hello everyone. Um, I'm uh, Captain James Dickens. I'm a uh, um, nurse in the U.S. Public Health Service or a nurse practitioner in the U.S. Public Health Service uh, detailed to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services where I, 
I uh, manage uh, uh, the long-term care one uh, survey operations group branch there for a five-state region in region six. I'm also a uh, regional director for AAMP, uh, the first uh, African-American male um, to be uh, in that position. And I also serve AAMP as the uh, the liaison, board liaison to the Diversity, Equities, and Inclusion Committee as well. Great, great. So I'm Dr. Khalil Demambrian. I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. Uh, my current role is the women's health medical director at the Columbia VA Healthcare System in Columbia, South Carolina. I am the also the AAMP state rep for South Carolina, as well as I serve on the health policy committee. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Captain Edward Poindexter. I'm a family nurse practitioner with the United States Public Health Service Corps. Currently, I work at the FDA and I work um, on the incidence management team with the Division of Supply Chain in Integrity. And what we do is make sure that we get the bad drugs off the market. Um, specifically, um, we've been working with metformin, ranitidine, and and currently, the biggest issue that we've been working on for the past four months is dealing with hand sanitizers. Um, in addition to that, um, I have my own telemedicine practice, Guardian Primary Care Services, where I provide affordable health care um, at very reasonable rates. And I'm so happy to be here today um, to speak with these wonderful, wonderful human beings um, and I'm so proud to be a part of this great, great fraternity uh, of men. And um, I'm just overjoyed uh, to be a part of all of this. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad okay. you're all here. Oh, Randy, go ahead. Okay, this is Randy Rash again. I'm listening to these guys and realize they're telling a lot more about themselves than I did. So <laughs> I am the Dean of the College of Nursing at Michigan State University. I'm a family nurse practitioner and I'm probably the first African-American male to be a nurse practitioner of any kind, and that would be certificate or um, a, a master's graduate degree. Um, I've, so I'm older than all of them, so I've had a long <laughs> life. See, look at them laughing. That's but, true. But, but, it's, true. but it's true. It's true. true. So true. there's a lot of history there. Um, I uh, started out as a public health nurse mainly, ended up in the Department of Correction as a family nurse practitioner, and then as they say, the rest is history. Uh, um, we're all fellows in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and I was the first of the African-American gentlemen, I'm gonna call myself a gentleman, uh, to be inducted in that. And so there's been a little domino effect because we've been bringing each other in. I brought Sheldon in. Yes. You did. I was the second um, African-American male to be a fellow, um, and I'm a family nurse practitioner. And in his younger days, people used to mistake me for Randy. <laughs> <laughs> they, th they think we're brothers. Even my family thinks we look like brothers. <laughs> yeah. I could see how that could happen. Yeah. So there are a lot of firsts. You guys are all pioneers in your respective fields, and certainly um, uh, in, in the fellows of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I mean, you're the first five, right? And yep. Yep. so yep. Um, you yes. are all definitely leaders in, in your respective fields. And I want to talk more about that. But let's, I want to talk first about all 
the firsts. And then I want to talk to you about where did your road begin? How did you get to where you are today? So, Randy, you mentioned um, the uh, the first that you were. Um, do you have any more firsts you want to add to that? I have a lot of them. <laughs> I was the first African-American male to graduate in nursing from my undergraduate program. I was. You heard me say I was a public health nurse. I was the first African-American male public health nurse in the state of Michigan. And actually, I may have been the first male uh, public health nurse in the state of Michigan. Uh, my master's degree is from Vanderbilt University. And you heard me say I was the first African-American male nurse practitioner of any kind. And then I did my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, hook em horns. <laughs> and I'm the first African-American male to have a PhD in nursing. That would be in the world. <laughs> so all of those were first for all. I would get to every one of those and they'd say, we think you're the first. And I'd go, you've got to be kidding me. So, <laughs> so you're truly a pioneer. And, and Khalil, you've got you've got some first of your own, don't you? Yeah, I'm a, a couple of them. So uh, I was first uh, in my class at the Henry Ford Hospital School of Nursing, which is a diploma program. And uh, as I graduated, um, they were interested and said, hey, what what area are you going to go into? And so I knew at 15, at the age of 15, that I wanted to be a uh, take care of women. I knew I wanted to be practice in the, uh, in the model, which is now what I understand as a nurse practitioner model. But for some reason at 15, I didn't know what that was, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I went to Henry Ford Hospital School of Nursing, uh, graduated, and my first job out was uh, on the MedSurge GYN floor. So I was kind of like the first guy there. Uh, we wore pink scrubs. And uh, I remember when I first got hired, they were like, well, what are you going to wear? said, well, what does everyone else wear? They said, well, they wear pink scrubs. I was like, well, you have a size for me. I think I'll wear it. (laughs) So I wore the pink scrubs. Uh, From there, I went to antepartal newborn nursery and postpartal unit, stayed there for a couple of years. And then I became a labor and delivery nurse, uh, practicing high-risk labor and delivery for about 10 years before I became a women's health nurse practitioner. Uh, And I'm actually the first women's health nurse practitioner who's a male who in the country, who's earned a DMP degree. So you're like a unicorn, a unicorn, <laughs> a black swan. <laughs> so Khalil, you told us a little bit about how, how you got started in your earlier years and how you came up. Let's, let's, uh, let's let, let James tell us a little bit about himself and how he got started. Sure. <clears throat> so I'm from the Delta Northeast Louisiana. So I'm a first gen college student and, uh, you know, went into the Air Force and uh, spent some time in Alaska for five years and started off as a corpsman and realized that, you know, that's that was the model that I wanted to follow. And actually, I wanted to go into nurse anesthesia. I got accepted to PA school through the University of Washington first. And the only reason and it was a community based program back back in the uh, late 80s. And um, I uh, I wanted to go to nurse anesthesia school at the time. And so. Um, I was fixated on that. And that was the only reason I didn't go to PA school. And when I got to nurse, pra- uh, the time to go to nurse practitioner school or go to uh, nurse anesthesia school, um, the the issue was uh, they started closing them down because they, all those programs were going to master's level programs. And so um, I was in the Air Force at that time, transitioned over to U.S. Public Health Service after about 14 years, eight years active duty, six in the reserves. 
And uh, and Ed and I met each other back in the early 90s um, where we both went to an HBCU um, and uh, our paths crossed a couple of times. And so we both end up matriculating together in the U.S. Public Health Service. And and who would have who would have, you know, given that any thought, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, so for, for me, uh, my, my stays have been in the operating room, orthopedics, long term care. And, uh, and and I too am a family nurse practitioner, so that's been my road. And most of my most of my niche or whatever has been in emergency uh, disaster preparedness, emergency management piece, and and specifically from a nursing perspective, but also from a leadership perspective, I had an opportunity to go to Africa and lead the Ebola mission. And I just returned back from our Commission Corps headquarters in uh, Rockville, Maryland where I ran our command center uh, for deployments for all of the U.S. Public Health Service and all the assets that are downrange uh, supporting the COVID-19 mission for the U.S. Uh, government. You better tell them what an HBCU is. Oh, um, HBCU is a historically black college or university. And I, I got it all covered, though, Randy. I've, I've, I've gone to traditional schools. My uh, DNP is from Texas Tech, so guns up for Texas Tech and all the, all the Texans here. That's awesome. So, Sheldon, why don't you uh, let's backtrack a little and, and talk about how you got to where you are today. So, like a lot of people here, I was probably the first um, African American male in my nursing school at Binghamton University, State University of New York. Um, but I was also the first person in my immediate family to graduate high school and never go off to college. Um, by the time I uh, uh, got done. Um, and winded up uh, getting my master's to, to do the FMP uh, again back at Bantam um, and was searching for uh, a doctoral program. Um, I winded up hearing the same thing from a lot of schools I had applied to. You know, they would all say, We've never had an African American male in our program. And I was just like, Well, somebody's going to have one because I need to get a PhD. <laughs> And I winded up being the first African-American male to ever get a Ph.D. in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania under the direction of Dr. Loretta Sweet Jamat, because I, I wanted to go into HIV AIDS uh, prevention work. And that's what I've been doing. Sheldon. And yes, uh, Dr. Jamat is a Hampton grad graduate. I just want to throw that out there. Hampton University, she, which is an HBCU. There we go. Just want to throw that out. Just want to throw that out. <laughs> she she most certainly is for, for That's undergrad. That's exactly right. She That's is. right. Um, uh, my grandmother wouldn't let me go to an HBCU, James. She she okay. told me I needed to stay uh, uh, my my um, behind up in the north where she thought I would be safer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I think, I think she was right. Tell you the truth. Um, but I winded up, you know, for my first, uh, faculty position, um, I winded up being in the first African-American male faculty member, uh, ever at the university of Rochester school of nursing, where I was for many, many years. And then winded up becoming the first male nurse to become a Robert Wood Johnson health policy fellow in 2009, uh, working at the time for Senator Barbara Mikulski, uh, who was the senior Democratic senator from Maryland, um, working on the Affordable Care Act uh, in the Obama administration. Um, so those are some really interesting times. Um, uh, did a lot of great work um, and, and still doing both health disparities work, HIV work, 
um, as well as now moving into specifically doing work on diversity, equity, and inclusivity uh, within higher education. That's great. You know, all the work that you've all done is just so impressive, but I don't want to leave Ed out. So Ed, uh, share us, share your wisdom with us, share us your story. Well, thank you. Um, I'm just so impressed by these gentlemen. Um, You know, just to be in their presence, it it sort of gives me life and gives me energy. But for me specifically, um, I'll start with um, uh, my first. Um, So I recently um, came to the FDA. uh, I just had my one-year anniversary last month. But prior to coming to the FDA, um, I was the first African-American male and the first nurse practitioner to be the chief chief of health operations for ICE Health Service Corps. I oversaw 21 clinics in the care um, of about 15,000 patients daily. Um, I was responsible for everyone in the clinic, the health care, the 800-person medical staffing contract, um, um, and, um, you know, that was, that was a very... Um, extremely fulfilling and challenging job at the same time, but uh, we managed to accomplish so much. Uh, And so 10 months after accepting that position, um, I was requested to step in to a higher leadership position as the deputy assistant director for health system support, where I oversee, oversaw the chief of, I was, uh, I oversaw health operations, um, the electronic medical record, in addition to that, I oversaw the uh, special operations uh, team as well. And so um, those were my first. Now, how did I, how did I get to nursing? Um, when I was a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid, um, the provision for me to be able to use a family car was I had to go and feed my grandmother, who was on dialysis, three times a week. Um, and... That experience was life-changing for me. One, because I got a chance to have that one-on-one time with my grandmother, who at that time was at the end stages of her life. Um, In addition to that, it taught me responsibility. But what I noticed and observed um, was that my grandmother um, sometimes did not receive the same type of care as other people who were in uh, that facility. I grew up in southwestern Virginia. Um, and so I was happy to be there because I could provide that extra level of care for her, um, that she wasn't receiving. So, um, I recognized health disparities at a very early age and subsequently that sort of, uh, drove my career path to nursing, starting as a hospital corpsman, um, and then going back to nursing school, um, as, as, um, James mentioned, I graduated from Hampton. Um, I got my undergrad and graduate uh, or master's degree from Hampton University. H U. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just that just fell out of my mouth. Sorry. More like popped out. <laughs> Subsequently, I enrolled in nursing school within one year of um, getting out of uh, the Navy as a hospital corpsman, and that's where you know after a ho- lots of 25 years plus of hard work. Um, I was accepted as a fellow with this great company. Um, and here you are today. But well, de- well deserved. So well I have deserved. a timeout moment. My timeout moment is we've all told our stories. 
We've all told our transitions of how we've become nurses, but there are three of us that kind of stick out a different way. So James mentioned HBUs. Uh, HBCUs, historically black uh, college universities. We are fraternity brothers, James and Ed, in Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. So I just wanted to share that with you, and I want to say "roo" for the Q dogs out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll throw I'll throw one other thing in here about HBCUs. And I don't know if this is true in other states, but I, I'm from Michigan, but I ended up in North Carolina. And one of the things I would tell you is that in North Carolina, early on, the people that had a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing were African-Americans because they weren't allowed to go to diploma programs. They weren't allowed to go to associate degree programs. So they went to college-based nursing programs. Um, um, uh, oh, I'm blocking on her name now. Uh, the the executive director for the NLA and NLN. Um, oh, Ooh, Beverly Malone. Beverly Malone. Beverly Malone. Beverly, yeah. Beverly Malone and several others are examples of women who early got the Bachelor of Science degree in nursing because they were in southern states that didn't allow them to go to alternative programs. And one of the things you know about those women is many of them are exceptional leaders and known nationally and some internationally as well. So I have to give a shout out to my sisters, too. Absolutely. Um, Incoming living legend, Dr. Beverly Malone. Uh, Amen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or Strickland had a very similar uh, entry into nursing as well. And Beverly actually ended up, and I think we talked about this loosely, but she's the only American nurse, I believe, that uh, that ran the NHL National Health Service Corps for the UK, if I'm yes. correct yep. on that. So yes. she's yeah, the only correct. American nurse uh, that that's not from the UK that actually run ran that health service corps. That's Royal their College socialized. of Nursing. Royal College of Nursing. Oh, the Royal College of Nursing. Yeah. That's Royal right. College I'm sorry. Nursing. So I stand corrected. I, I sat as a undergraduate at the University of South Carolina. I trans, uh, transitioned there after I got my diploma degree. Came to South Carolina because uh, the University of South Carolina had a advertised bridge program where they would take a diploma grad to a master's in women's health. And so that was one of the better programs in the nation. And we drug my family here and... Um, during my early tenure there as a student, sat on a panel, and that was where I was first introduced to to Dr. Strickland and uh, just Aura's presence. Just just sitting on that panel with her, it was her. It was actually her, Ben Car- Carson, and several other just distinguished uh, African Americans. And I remember sitting next to Aura, and she actually I have a handwritten note from her, and the note basically sums up to. If you stay the course, you'll do well. And actually, I have that that note. It's on my dresser and my, you know, you have on your like your your jewelry box. I still have that handwritten note from Dr. Strickland. And so that was a very inspirational moment to help me uh, ascend. And and, and hopefully uh, I aspire to be better as a nurse and and hopefully to continue that trend as as, as a uh, advanced practice nurse as well. But, you know, a lot I want to say just one one really quick thing. A lot of us um, I knew grew up with very strong uh, female influences, whether it was our mothers or um, uh, the women around us, Uh, Mm -hmm. because much like Ed, um, I grew up 
my grandmother raised me and she also was a diabetic Ed. And, you know, I learned uh, nursing because I, ha I had to give her insulin. Um, so that was my very early, early sort of influences. Um, and then um, my aunt, her her oldest daughter, her oldest daughter was a nurse and was the most successful person in, in our family that I saw as a role model. So when I went to go to high school, I went to Clara Barton High School for Health Professions in New York City uh, into the LPN program in order to work my way through college. And it was because of those influential women. I was just going to say one other thing about influential women, because we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the problems we have when we talk about that is we'll have folks appointed in those positions, and often they're African-Americans or minorities, and all of a sudden they become the people responsible for it. So some years ago, I gave the commencement address at UT Austin, and my, my friend and colleague, uh, Alexis Steifbergen, is the dean there. We graduated from the PhD program, and she introduced me by saying about all the first. And... Um, Okay, they know they know me. I'm, I often start crying. But when I got up, I realized that I was the first African-American male in all of those places. But I was educated by white women who did what educators should do. They didn't see me as an African-American male. They saw me as Randy. And they educated me based on who I was as a person, not that I was a man. And I, I said at the commencement, I said, I look back now and I know I drove them crazy <laughs> because of the things that I would do. And half the time I could just now I can now see they probably just roll their eyes and go, oh, good grief. What's he going to do next? But they were tremendously supportive to me. And I want to say that because. Um, I think our African-American sisters in nursing who've taught us and mentored us and we for each other, that's tremendously important. But I think there's a message for white men and white women who are teaching minority students. Don't think that you're giving that responsibility up to someone else. You Implicit bias means looking at people not with blinders on, but who they are and accepting them for who they are and educating them based on their history that's seen as a strength, not a liability. So I just thought I needed to throw that out too. Randy, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever not, it's usually I cry when Ed tells his story about his grandmother. I don't really cry. It's usually my allergies start to act <laughs> right around there. And I don't know why, but Ed has this story that it's just, because I, I think it rings true with so many of us, but this one, actually, my allergies, I think, are acting up a little bit, Randy. Oh. So. Well, and I cry because I blame it on my father. I have a mother, a brother, and a sister. My father always cried in church, and I always knew why he was crying, because I'd start crying, too. <laughs> so you've all talked about, kind of uh, broached on the topic of, you know, the influential people in your lives, including each other, who've, who've, you know, you've all inspired each other as well. But so what are some critical points that you've had in your life, some influential people other than the ones that you've talked about, in, uh, pivotal experiences that you've had in your life? I, I know you've all had so many with the, the long paths that you've all um, led. Um, Randy, I, I know you've got, got to have a story for us. 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll go through it quickly. The first thing I'd say is that I, I didn't get into nursing because I was headed to nursing. I thought I was going to medical school. And in high school, our guidance counselor was a nurse, a nurse anesthetist. And I said to him, if I go into nursing, can I go on to medical school? And he said, yeah, you just need to make sure you take the prerequisites. And I went to high school on the same campus where I went to college. I got into nursing and my sophomore year went, this isn't what I thought it was. I like it. So I did that, ended up in the public health. I went to the FNP program because nurse practitioners at the health department said, why are you going off to be a clinical nurse specialist? You should become a nurse practitioner. And based on what you want to do, you should become a family nurse practitioner. And then a pivotal piece for me is that when I graduated from Vanderbilt, I was hired in the Tennessee Department of Correction, which was under federal court order for not meeting constitutional um, state, uh, the constitutional requirements for care of prisoners in general, but healthcare prisoners. What year Jamie was this, Brody, Randy? Uh, I graduated in 1979, so I went in in 1979, and Jamie Brody had been my preceptor. Jamie should be a posthumous FAANP. Um, Jamie was the first, he, we came to the Department of Correction, Health Services was run by an MD. Jamie became the first non-physician director of health services, and I became the first uh first director of nursing services for the department statewide. Together, we led the department, which was under federal court oversight. When they went to review the department again, health services was released from federal oversight and the rest of the department was in deeper trouble. Jamie and I looked at each other, went, yep, time to go. And I went off to the PhD program. But I think, you know, I always think of it as my favorite, one of my favorite books is The Glass Bead Game by Herman Hess. And in that book, the character goes through a series of awakenings. I say to people, I, I'm where I am and I never plan to be here because I never planned a career. When a door would open, I'd go, oh, that looks like interesting. I'll go through that. So there were people all along the way that said to me, you should think about this. You could do this. And I think that's, that has been really important for me. Well, and I wanted to ask you the years because I think it's very important to put things into context. I mean, oh. uh, you've all got uh, a lot of years of experience. I mean, and the roads that you've taken, it's not just traditional bedside nursing. You've all, all done such amazing things. I mean, Randy, when you started at the um, um, Department of Corrections, I was eight. I was eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was still riding my bike down the street. So you know, there are a lot of things. I mean, what was it like being in the, working in the Department of Corrections back in 1979 in Tennessee? So, so I started out in, um, in the hospital on a surgical floor, went to um, uh, the public health nurse, and I was a public health nurse in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which was kind of inner city. So when I got to the Department of Correction, it was kind of inner city too, but Remember, I'm from Michigan and I'm in Tennessee in the prison system with inmates who are from up in the mountains of East Tennessee or from Memphis, Tennessee. So I met all kinds of men. Um, I've sort of been blessed because I never know when I'm in trouble. So I've traveled all over Tennessee in a state car and I had hair and it was jet black. And um, I knew I looked, I'd, it never occurred to me that I'd look like I was in counties that I shouldn't be in because there were no 
people of color in the mountains. Um, and I, I look back now and I see that people say, oh, we got to protect this fool because he doesn't know what trouble he's in. <laughs> but I've met all kinds of people. Uh, you know, I remember the guy at the, in, in um, the main prison who I was having an argument with him about why he killed somebody because he'd called him a name. And I finally looked at him and said, I just have one thing to say to you. And he goes, what is it? I said, you are exactly where you need to be. <laughs> but uh, I think one of the things that you, one of the things I think I had told you about my implicit bias, my own implicit bias, um, come to Jesus experiences. The first one was when I was in my 20s and I saw a black man walking ahead of me who was also in his 20s and I crossed the street. And when I crossed the street, I realized that I'd crossed the street because I was afraid of him and thought, where did that come from? Because I had never felt that way until in my 20s. And then I realized that society had told me to be afraid of this young man because I was a young man, too. And I thought, I know, I know you. I know who you are. And I know that African-American men can be some of the most loving, affectionate men around. And I had drunk that Kool-Aid. That started my journey. And I think the other one we talked about before was seeing an inmate in the prison who was from the mountains. And I'd seen him several times. So one day I called his name while out of the waiting room and I went in and took care of him. And when he left, another inmate came in right behind me and said, you seem like you're pretty friendly with so-and-so. And I said, well, I'm, I'm friendly with everybody. And he says, Yes, but you shouldn't be friendly with him because he's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I was so, I, I was almost distraught about it when I got home. It was like, whoa. And I really struggled with it. And I finally decided he might be a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but that's not my experience of him. So the next time I saw him, I, you know, we finished and I said, um, I need to t ask you something. And I told him what had happened and I said, are you a member of the Ku Klux Klan? And he looked at me, looked down, and he said, yes. And then the thing he said next, which I think is important to think about any patient we care for, he looked at me and he said, are you not going to take care of me anymore? And I said, of course I'm going to take care of you, but we need to talk. And so on succeeding visits, we talked. And what I learned was he was from up in the mountains, he never knew anyone of color. He joined the Ku Klux Klan just like young men and women of color in the inner city might join a gang. And so the thing I've learned always, and I have this mantra that I had when I saw patients, I have it with students and now with faculty too. I always remember when I'm getting a little perturbed, the phrase that comes to me is, it is not about you. And when you can remember that it's not about you, then you can be an instrument of service for any individual and for organizations to move them forward as well. So, okay, I don't have any more stories. <laughs> See, that's good stuff right there. That's just good I, stuff. I, I find that hard to believe, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an interesting, interesting story again. And it's funny how, you know, we talk about how we heard of, heard about each other and kind of, you know, I knew Sheldon or I knew James or I knew Randy. My daughter, my oldest daughter actually matriculated to, uh, after, uh, she finished at Emory, went to, uh, the university of North Carolina, Greensboro. 
And I recall being very excited. Uh, there's a, pit, a statue of Minerva. You, you, yes. that, that statue, we went and took, took pictures of that. And the funny thing was, so we went all over campus when I first drove over there, took all these pictures, stood on the, uh, it had the, uh, that, uh, the, what's the, when the, when the metal, uh, turns the color from being out, like turns the color from patina. being outside for a picture. It had a, yeah, it had this really vibrant patina on it. So I had these pictures, but I recall when I went, the one thing that I had to do was I had looked up Randy's office number <laughs> and I said, I have to go by and see the office of Dr. Randy <laughs> Roush because he's like Randy. So I remember hunting down your office and, and just going to just just going to see the building. It was like Randy works here. I didn't get to meet you. Stalking but, Randy. But Randy <laughs> works here. <laughs> well, it's it's amazing because all of us have effects on people and we don't know we don't know those effects. I have two guys who are, uh, they're like brothers, they're not really brothers, but they were in my program at, in the program at, at Vanderbilt. And and so students from there and from other places will call me out of the blue um, just to tell me, and I'm glad they're not doing it after I die, but to tell me what I meant to them and how much they love me. You know, you as an educator, and, as, and I've had patients do that too, you you don't ask for that. That's not what you do it for. And you but it's amazing the impact that you can have. And I think that's the other important thing is for people to know the impact that they can have as an individual on other lives. In the prison, I always said the guys would say, Why are you working here? And you know, we'd chat and talk about that. But the thing I learned is if you can be the person who in working with a patient, with a student, with a faculty member or a colleague, if you can be the person who lights the spark so they think differently about themselves, yeah. you might not see the outcome of that, but it was important that you were alive and that that happened. And then they'll do the same thing with other people. But Randy, you think about that. So every last one of the, the four horsemen, which there's five and, and getting ready to be six of us, all of us, it's like a daisy chain back to you, right? And some capacity, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so now think about the think about the lives that you touched that that's just on this line here, just us four right yeah. here. Mm -hmm. And the lives that we've touched. So I had the opportunity or the pleasure to bring in Ed and I also brought in Ed knows that I had an opportunity to bring in Susan Orsega who Ed worked with and yeah. we would call her Rear Admiral Upper Half, two-star Rear Admiral Arcega. Ed worked with her many years ago at NIH. I knew her when she was a captain, and I could call her Susan. Right now, I have to call her Admiral Arcega. But those are the lives that that you've touched indirectly. And I think I, I don't think you give yourself enough credit that uh, one of the stories my wife always talk about 
is when we were in New Orleans and you jumped out of the van and we did the karaoke van when we at got the fellows. The van. Yeah, in New Orleans. I mean, like coming from uh, Sophia, we were coming from uh, Co- Commander's uh, Palace. Commander's oh, Palace. Oh, when y'all had Commander's the disco Palace. van. And we yeah, had the we disco had, yeah. van. The disco van. And, and so, and so, and, and my wife's a nurse midwife. But, but, but even touching her and the and the spirit in which he did, and she says, and he's a dean of a nursing school. I said, yeah, and he's crazy as a car full of monkeys. He just likes to <laughs> live life and have a good time. Yeah, Thank exactly. Exactly. They had a microphone of music. I was singing lead, and the the van, the it pulled up at the hotel, and you could hear it. And people were waiting, and I jumped out, and I was still singing. They, we all yeah. got out, and I was still we, singing. But others I had think lights the, too. I think the guy, the the cab fare was like twenty bucks. And I think we tipped him about 150 bucks because he drove <laughs> yeah, around the block a, like had, two or three times to. We had so a really good time. We had a blast. Night. It was, but, it was but, a blast. But but I digress. I mean, I think and, and, and to that point, I think Ed is touching people in the public health service and and we're all trying to touch others. Um, we had another public health service officer that was uh, selected as a fellow this year. Uh, that Ed worked with a while back at CMS and some other places, and mm-hmm. and so the, the, so so I guess I say uh, I would say to you, Randy, that that it, that it continues. You you planted the flower, watered the seed, you know, tilled the fields, and it continues. But that's the charge that I think you give us, that Sheldon gives us, that mm-hmm. you know we give each other um, to do that. So you're you're, anyway. you're right, James, because um, Randy might have been the first to get a PhD in nursing. And remember, I said that um, when I applied to programs, people kept telling me we've never had anybody like you in this program. And I didn't know what to do with that. And it it was isolating. Um, And I remember when I first heard about who Randy was and realized that there was somebody else out there like me, uh, you know, an African-American man who 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 already had a PhD in nursing. Um, and I was so in awe when I first met him um, because I had a reflection of myself. And then to realize that he was such a normal. kind, a normal <laughs> and, and very kind and, and supportive. Uh, now you uh, use individual. the word normal. You use the word normal loosely, right? I mean, yeah, very loosely. <laughs> trying to put that in context. But just trying to put it in context. He's been Thanks for bringing him back, reel him back in. Oh, I know. But he's been so incredibly supportive throughout my entire career, um, and you know, even the work that I do now uh, within you know other organizations like the National Black Nurses Association. Um, who all you know, you know, I'm the national first vice president, you know, in the work that we even do in that group to make sure that uh, there are others coming behind us. And the number of folks that I've been able, particularly black men who've been able to get through programs that I've been able to mentor, um, who all have who I make sure they all meet Randy. Randy has met all of them um, because <laughs> that's true. <laughs> be- it, it is because because. They need to know who he is um, and, right. and what he's done for me in that legacy. He does something, though, even, even more interesting that I can say, though. He's actually, so he's connected people who have been interested in, in women's health or maternity, nursing, and he's like, call Khalil. And I'll get a text, and he's like, I know this person. Mm-hmm. They want to be in, in women's health. Talk to this person. So it's almost like you're charged with 
okay, I got to kind of take this person under my wing. You know, Randy <laughs> sent them to me. So not only are you a pioneer and you're a trailblazer and you're pay, pay, making this path, but now you have somebody like Randy who is a trailblazer and he's sending that person to you. Like, take care of this individual. Mentor him in the way that you have been mentored. And so I think, you know, Sheldon, when I met you, we we sat down, we talked about some things when I first met you. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow. And then when I met James, you know, I saw James all over AAMP and I saw his picture. And I remember when we first, you know, talked and I found out he was, uh, he was an Omega. And to this day, James, we talk, what, at least once or twice a month. We'll just pick up oh, the phone. Yeah. And, hey, let me ask you this. He'll text me. And then Ed, you know, I met Ed through James and, and just... So we're pushing each other at the same time, uh, which is which is fantastic because I think we're pushing the profession, and we're we're showing uh, collectively that we can we can do it. You know, when I was at University of South Carolina, I mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Carson and, and Dr. Strickland, and actually it was two different panels. Uh, they weren't on the same panel, but the leaders there were like uh, men like uh, Dan Peshit. Dan Peshit yeah. was the first president of Sigma Theta Tau, who was a Sigma. male. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, Richard, Dr. Richard Cowling, Howard Butcher, you know, these were, fo- these were the faculty and I, and I, but I was in awe of them, but I still hadn't seen somebody look like me. So when I finally met Randy and, and, and Sheldon, I was like, they look, they look like me, you know, they're doing great things, but they look like me. And so that was really, really impressive to me. And you all have given back so much to the profession and, and to each other. And I, I wonder how much of that is just the, the sheer nature, not only just you being all great guys, but, you know, the innate being of being a nurse on the inside and just that always having that caretaking, want to give back, want to take care of others spirit that's so ingrained in us as as nurses, as nurse practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's. You know, I, I want to go back to um, when I was 15 or 16. So at that particular time, nursing was nowhere on my radar. Um, you know, I was lifting weights like crazy. I was working on my speed because at the time, you know, I was this prospect football player, track running. But what year was this? Let's give a pers- some perspective. This is 1982. All right. Yeah, I wasn't born. I wasn't born then. So. I was 11. You were born then. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds, sounds good, you know. <laughs> Stay with it. Go with the story. <laughs> Let's go with the story. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm so rude, Ed. I apologize. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But like most of uh, these gentlemen on this call, you know, um, the black mother, the black grandmother was a extremely strong figure in the family. In my particular family, both of my grandmothers or grandfathers had passed away before I was born. They died in their early 40s from diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and, um, and subsequently, um, so did my grandmother. But when you're 15, 16 year old, and you are in that clinical setting and you see other people are receiving care and treatment that your whole world is not receiving, that changes you. 
I'm going to give you and a tissue, this, Ed. I'm going to give you a tissue, my brother. I'm going to give you a tissue. I'll yeah. give you a virtual hug. Well, the, you know what? And yep. this brings up my next my next question, Ed, and I was going to ask you about this. Um, you know, looking forward to today right now, we're, we're looking at um, social determinants of health. We're looking at the whole uh, social justice, diversity, uh, racism, structural racism, and um, really COVID has brought to light um, the health disparities that we have in this country. You know, when I was uh, in nurse practitioner school 25 years ago, I was learning that the the people most at risk for uh, kidney disease, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes were the African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, um, you know, the African-American Hispanic population. You know, fast forward to 25 years, and now we're still having those same um, health inequities that existed back when I went to NP school uh, back in the 1990s, and you know, there was the same, you know, back when your grandparents were there, and you know, so this brings me to my my question and my discussion about, um, you know, everything that we're doing in healthcare in this country. Those numbers haven't changed. Um, those health disparities are still there. But Sophia, I think we're getting a, a broader perspective on diversity itself just by this conversation coming to the table. Yeah. So you think about Leininger and you think about, you know, when we learned cultural competence, we learned black people, white people. We might have threw a couple of Asians in there and a couple of, you know, things about Latinos, but we didn't really talk about diversity. And when I speak on diversity, I'm not talking about just black, white men, women, we're talking diversity in cultures. We're yeah. talking diversity in theology. We're talking, everybody's not a Christian. Everybody's not a heterosexual. Everybody's not a homosexual. We take care of transgender patients nowadays. We take care of a plethora of diverse humans because that right. is what we do. Just like the meta paradigm yeah. of nursing. Exactly. We take care of humans. And that, absolutely that, right. that palette of diversity is so broad. And so this this dialogue that we're coming with that that's come to the forefront, we've been kind of nipping at it a little bit. You know, I was in Detroit in the nineteen sixty seven riot when that happened. And I remember I was I was seven years old. Okay, I remember tanks coming down the street and I was like, What is this really about? It you're right, we're still having this conversation about uh, equity and and, 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 and and equality, but we're really having it about diversity now. And so I think we're in this land of America, we're the land of the free, the home of the brave. There are so many different types of us, and we're all humans, but the common denominator for all of us here is that we take care of humans. Right. And that's our charge. Non-judgmentally. That's what right. we do. And so we right. have to embrace the full context of diversity. If we're really exactly. going to have this conversation, then that's how the conversation. Yeah. Right. And, and, right. and I think we subscribe to what Randy talked about. And Ed, I want to acknowledge uh, I, I want to acknowledge your 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 emotions. And I, too, know how hard it is. You know, my mother died of breast cancer at 36. And so I, and, and probably not a lot of you all knew that story. I don't know if I even shared it with anybody. But again, no. it goes back to goes back to the whole we take care of humans thing. You know, I remember the first time I seen my mother, 
you know, uh, uh, after chemo and everything, she was, you know, skin and bones and just, you know, emaciated, had, had gone through a lot. And um, just, just, but you imagine as a child, how do you, how do you, how do you process that? Wasn't any counseling for me when it wasn't any, you know, talking to me about it. So Ed, I, I hear you loud and clear. When I first heard that story about you, um, about your, your, your affinity for your grandmothers and, and what you've gone through, it, 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 it makes you take a, a moment of pause and, and, and take inventory on why do I really do this? Uh, why, why am I doing this? And why are outcomes better with, uh, with marginalized populations when they're seen by clinicians uh, of, of, of like backgrounds, you know, that data is out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I also wanted to step into uh, uh, what Sophia uh, alluded to um, is the differential access. And I think, I think so, uh, uh, Khalil, that's what you kind of alluded to and drilling down even further, uh, taking care of patients. But the differential access, Ed talked about his, his private practice that he runs affordable health care. <clears throat> but it's the differential access because if we all had access to affordable health care, which AAMP is striving to get all 50 states and territories to come into alignment on that. If we could if we could do that, you know, that access would be the same across the board. And and I think that differential access, as as, as Carmen uh, Phyllis Jones describes it from APHA, uh, differential access to goods and services and particularly health care services. Right. Right. Health care services. And that's what. You know, when Ed talked about, I want to, uh, you know, I want to provide affordable health services to to clients, to patients, um, those differential services. Why would why should he have to do something different than everybody else other than he's seen a niche, a niche, a niche and he went for it? Um, but why why should there be differential services? And again, to your point, uh, Khalil, when we're, we're in the home of the free and the brave and we've had pioneers like Randy and Sheldon to lead the way. And Sophia, who's done a fine job uh, in the media uh, uh, pontificating about what we bring to the table, the 290,000 plus, and why are we not all members? I'll never know, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but 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 why, you know, that, that differential and, and versus using institutional racism, I would like us to adopt differential access. I think that's disarming. It's almost like uh, versus global warming, calling it climate change, right? Same damn thing, right? Institutional racism, differential mm-hmm. access, same damn thing. But I think it disarms a lot of people and it brings a lot of people to our side yeah. um, to say that we're all we're talking about is access to services, period. And- but think about the context, though, James, in which we're having this conversation. A lot of people listening uh, to this podcast have probably never heard a compilation of five black men all trained at the advanced practice level in the profession of nursing. So and with terminal the, degrees. And with, with terminal, terminal degrees. degrees. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that therein lies uh, a game changer because within the context of the profession that we are all in, we are still uh, such an oddity to so many people. And I charge nursing at this point, you know, 30 plus years into my own nursing career, why is it that nursing that has a moral and ethical obligation to care for, as Khalil said, all of the human beings that we encounter, why is our profession 
still 90% female and 80% white because honestly, that's not diverse. That's not who we are as a nation. That's not who all we take care of. And in that um, uh, sort of context of nursing comes some of those very same challenges uh, to be able to deliver the type of care that we all are taught, uh, have been taught to do in nursing school. And, And that's a reality as well. The profession has to do more from my standpoint. I agree with you no. wholeheartedly because, um, you know, when I joined the Navy and I had a whole lot of different career options and, um, you know, based on that two years experience, um, it wasn't a hard decision for me. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've always had the goal that, okay, um, I'll be a corpsman, I'll be an EMT, I'll be a nurse. But I've always sought to reach a higher level of nursing. In fact, I'm still not done. But, you know, nursing is a calling and not necessarily an initial calling, but it's a a calling. It's something that you have to love. It's something that you have to share. We have to share as African-American men. Um, You know, I, I routinely carry about 10 to 15 mentees and they're not just African-American. They're nurses in general. Um, You know, I'm considered, and James as well, we are um, considered senior officers in the United States Public Health Service, and we're go-to for a lot of people. So what I'm saying is, is that us leading by example, you know, talking to people, sharing our story, um, you know, opening up practices so people can have access to health care. I think it's very important that, you know, we continue to increase the numbers of males in general, but more specifically African-American men, because, you know, when I became a nurse, there was a stigma attached to me for a while. Right. People were saying all kinds of funny things were like, well, why do you want to be a nurse? You know, I got all these crazy questions. I was like, you know, well, two things, one thing's for certain, two things for certain. All of us going to get old and all of us going to need a nurse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the things I would jump on in, in terms of what Sheldon said. So all of us need to challenge the academy. When we look at potential students, we have to remember that what we're doing is preparing people to care for members of the population and that there's a duty to make sure, to try to ensure that that group looks like the population and we don't look like that. Diversity challenges you to think. Business knows this. They know if they're gonna be successful, they have to bring in a diversity of thought to be on the cutting edge. We are getting there, but all of us really need to push it. All of us have a responsibility. If we're not in education, to know people in education and challenge them on, we've always done it this way. So that's my challenge. We all have a responsibility for trying to open the door for Mm -hmm. a variety of people getting into nursing and being supported to achieve and graduate, to go and contribute to healthcare in the way that nurses can do it. 
because there are so many diverse ways now that nurses can contribute to healthcare. It's not just bedside nursing anymore. There are so many different fields that nurses can go into once they have that degree. You know, yeah. I was looking at the statistics today just on, um, you know, the male to female ratio in, in the nurse practitioner demographics hasn't changed in the last five years. And you're kidding. You know, it's, it's about the same, um, about 9% are males. But, you know, in comparing 2015 to 2019, I was actually surprised that uh, in 2015, 9% of nurse practitioners were people of color, and that's up to 20, uh, 20% in a uh, survey that we did. So, um, you know, I was I was very pleased to see that. And I think I attribute all of that to, um, you know, people like you leading by example, um, you know, letting other people, letting potential nurse practitioners see that, wait, Khalil, he looks like me. I could, I could go to school. I could get my, my master's, my doctorate degree, or I've seen what Khalil posts on, on social media, those very thoughtful, insightful posts that he does. And he's really smart. Maybe I want to, maybe I want to do what he does. So, you know, I, I think we have a lot of work to do as far as um, educating our, our young, educating the next generation beyond us. But, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so hopeful too. Uh, we've, we've got to have a positive attitude and a positive outlook. But, you know, the other thing I've been thinking about, because we've mentioned access several times, and this opportunity with the governor's coronavirus task force, We've driven some things and learned some things. So one of the things that was happening is that African-Americans couldn't get the test. So then we had drive-through tests, but people in certain communities couldn't drive through. They had to take the bus. And once they got there, they couldn't get the test because they walked up. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about access. And one of the things that we've driven is to take testing to the patients to the folks who need it. And in doing that, we've also used it as a model to think about taking immunizations. There are two task forces, two work groups within the coronavirus task force, and I led the primary care connection one. And one of the things we drove is identifying people who didn't have a primary care provider, and I kept driving, and they're not just physicians, <laughs> um, but how do you take primary care to people as well? Because these are folks who aren't going to get it. So one of the changes in healthcare, I think, is that more and more we're going to go to patients for the kind of care that we have given in offices. And it's already happening in a lot of places. But this coronavirus thing is really driving it. So when the immunization comes for the coronavirus, we already know that we're prepared to take the immunization to those communities. But we've got, to work, we've got work to do because they don't trust the immunization. I would say where you talk about access, that one of the, the critical lessons that we've learned in the last six months is that the patients don't have to come to us. No. We can actually go to them virtually. Mm -hmm. And we yes, can take care the of them virtually. We don't have to have them come and wait in the lobby and go out and get them. And we can actually now touch patients across the globe. And so right I, hope where the we are. I, I hope the demographers are, are looking at this. I hope the yeah. researchers are looking at this because it's going to take the payer sources to recognize, again, to Randy's point, oh, wise one. Um, that we have to meet them where they are. That's what they if call them, Black Jesus. 
Yeah, black Jesus. <laughs> but, but, but but we have to we have to meet those patients where they are. If they're UTB, if they're under the bridge, then we go under the damn bridge. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So so if we meet them where they are, and our payer sources are aren't hamstringing us, and I know I'm saying this with the risk of offending my own agency, CMS. Um, but 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 I think CMS took the lead in relaxing a lot of this they to did. make people understand. Mm-hmm. Now, my plug for nurse practitioners once again, who's most well positioned in this country to do primary health care in that space? Nurses. We get it in nursing we school. Get we get public health. Public nursing. health. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Thank you, Madam yes. President. Mm-hmm. So here's mm-hmm. the other Thank thing. You. And I'm going to we have our cell phones and we're providing telehealth care to our patients. But I'm going to put a plug in for this. As healthcare professionals, we need to advocate for access for broadband for our patients who don't have uh, necessarily Wi-Fi access. And that's the only limiting factor right now. Telehealth has been wonderful and it's been opened up to patients. It's not just the little old lady living in the country anymore, the Medicare recipient. It's it's opened up for everybody, you know, to be able to do telehealth. Um, They can they can check their text messages and their, as you say, uh, Instabook and, you know, whatever you call Phase it. Graham. Phase Grant. Yeah. Phase Grant. Um, you know, some patients uh, do have connectability issues. So that's something from a healthcare um, perspective. I, I, it's important to me that they have access that way because if we can truly improve their access uh, to broadband, we can really have an impact on their healthcare. And, and, and Sophia, I think, I think, I think you're going to get a champion in that space and you're going to get that in education. Because with yep. these kids being having to having to be educated from home and they're using all these different electronic platforms, I, I agree. I think that is a void and that's something that I, I certainly overlooked personally. But I think we're seeing that being exposed. But that dialogue is now on the table. And that's the important yeah. part. It's just like diversity. Now it's well, on everyone's conscience. It might be on the table, uh, but... You know, nurses do not use their power. Nurses do not use their power. (laughs) Nurses do not use their power. Comes from that saying, you know, in education, you got to say it three times. People will people will remember it. Um, (laughs) We are the largest and the most trusted of the healthcare professions. How many years running? How many years running? 12, 14, 15 years? Close to 20. Since since 9-11. Yeah. But but now I'll just say one thing, because I don't really care. Uh, who you vote for, but this is a political issue. This is a major election year. Vote, vote, vote. Sure. But, you know, one of the things I want to uh, share with you all, and, and I know a, uh, a couple of you all may be aware of some of the things that AAMP is doing, but this is my selfless plug for as the board liaison to the DE&I uh, committee um, we have a, a diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion committee. And what we've done, what we're doing, we're planning fireside chats. Mm-hmm. We're planning a lot of uh, uh, fun activities to engage our student membership and to engage our our, our, our membership of AAMP in the diversity, inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion space and conversation. Um, a lot of our members have been asking for that. And so Sophia uh, has... Uh, uh, greenlighted us to uh, do some fireside chats, ask ask some tough questions, ask some questions that typically don't get asked in these spaces, maybe behind, maybe behind closed doors 
from uh, patients that may not be of the same race or ethnicity as you. Um, but being able to ask some of those questions out in the open and get some honest, uh, having some honest dialogue, but more importantly, move the needle, have actionable items, actionable outcomes. And that's what we understand as nurses. It's all right to bump your gums and pontificate, which a lot of our colleagues can do and are very good at that. And to include myself, I'm a bureaucrat, as Ed would say, we're bureaucrats. This is what we do, right? We can we can bump our gums, but but have actionable items at the end um, that our members uh, can see that nurse other, other fellow nurse practitioners can see out in the public domain. So we have a platform to your point, Sheldon, and I don't think it has been the sword has not been wielded the way it should be wielded um, by nurses that are four million strong by nurse practitioners in just the association being able to leverage that into into an economic engine, a voting block, or whatever you choose to do to get a get a movement started. Because you can't be the most trusted profession by JD Powers and Ford can leverage it. Toyota can leverage it. Hyundai can leverage it. But you mean to tell me the damn nurses can't leverage that? Um, exactly. There's something awfully wrong right. with that if we can't. So anyway, I'm off my uh I'm off my uh, soapbox here. So that's my shameless plug. There's a lot exciting going on, just this conversation here and hearing what AANP is doing. And I'm now on the board of directors for the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. And I'm also on a task force that's, uh, um, they're now the American Organization of Nurse Leaders, but they used to be the American Organization of Nurse Executives. And so what we have more, and I think AANP can be become a part of this too, is a discussion between practice and education to produce what is needed, which is really saying, wait a minute, we are preparing and what we are doing is caring for patients and caring for populations of people. So all you guys are, the stuff that you're talking about in terms of the leadership of AAMP, really exciting to hear. And, and I just want you to know it's fitting in with other discussions nationally in nursing and other in other spaces. So it's just a great thing to see and hear. Well, you know, the mission of AANP is to empower all nurse practitioners to um, really impact policy, education, advocacy, research, and leadership. So practice education, advocacy, the research. Pearl. The pearl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, education for us has always been continuing education, but AANP um, uh, firmly um uh, believes that NP education is is important, and without great practicing NPs, education um, uh, won't be what it is because we need those great yep. preceptors. And without education, um, we won't have the the future, the future of our profession, and the future of leaders. So, I'm so glad you all joined us this evening. It's been a wonderful conversation, and um, I, I'm so in awe of all of you and all the the leadership that you've taken the the paths that your lives have have uh, taken, your your paths have crossed in in several several places. You've all been you've been frater- three of you are fraternity brothers, um, and I'm certainly glad to call you my my friends and colleagues. So I, I appreciate you all. Yes, Absolutely. this has been great. Thanks, thanks, Sophia. <laughs> I hope you found this episode enlightening too and can apply some of what was discussed in your own practice. If you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. 
During the entire month of October, AANP will be donating $10 to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation for every new member who joins. When you join, be sure to use the discount code BCRF20 to trigger the donation and let's help end breast cancer together. Don't forget that you can learn more about diversity and inclusion in healthcare and earn continuing education at the ongoing AANP Connect online conference. AANP Connect has more than 60 available sessions with the opportunity to earn more than 72 hours of continuing education. In addition, the AANP CE Center has a new great activity entitled, What is Race and Why Does It Matter? An Experiential Workshop. In this course, nurse practitioner Juliet Blunt unpacks the concept of race by exploring how we as individuals, as healthcare providers, and as a society define race. You can find this activity by visiting aanp.org forward slash CE Center. Also, if you want to learn more about AANP's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you can visit the AANP Diversity and Inclusion Committee's webpage at aanp.org forward slash diversity dash and dash inclusion. We would love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. Check back each month for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.